The Litro Lab Podcast. This episode of the Litro Lab Podcast is a suitably spooky Halloween special, featuring a ghost story by the master of the supernatural chiller M.R. James and an interview with an actor who is pushing the boundaries of literary performance to create chilling stage adaptations of his ghost stories. Since 2005, Robert Lloyd Parry's stage performances of the stories of M.R. James have played to audiences across the UK, releasing the ghost story from the page and returning it to its origins as a shared oral experience of pleasing terror. I spoke to Robert Lloyd Parry about where he first came across the stories and how the idea to stage them came about. I read them when I was about 13 or 14, I think, at the same time that I kind of read Conan Doyle and Saki and, and people like that. And I also I used to... I played Call of Cthulhu, so I was kind of into kind of um, Victorian horror, I suppose. Um, and then I kind of I didn't read them for many years, and I found myself I, I had a job for a while at the Fitzwilliam Museum in Cambridge, and I discovered while I was there that Emma James had been the director of the Fitzwilliam. So I remembered having enjoyed him reading him a few years before. So I kind of reread them and was absolutely again seduced by the stories and. On reading them, I even before I knew that they were written to read out loud, I could hear a voice in which they should be spoken very clearly in my head. So I kind of began um, doing a bit of research into the man himself, and it wasn't a difficult decision to um, to decide to, that they should be performed. And I kind of, you know, that, that, that decision was vindicated later on when I found out that that's the circumstances which they were written. Playing on a certain uncanny resemblance to James, Robert Lloyd Parry conjures him onto the stage, a fastidious, fusty, antiquarian scholar telling a spellbound audience of chosen friends a tale he once heard that he can't quite explain away. The results are truly spooky. Theatrically, they're, they're, they're very simple. It's, it's me sitting in an armchair next to a, a table with various props and paraphernalia on it. Um, I perform by candlelight where possible. And it's the candlelight that kind of adds the interesting visual aspect to the performances but um it, it really is it, it is very verbal it's I, I use the lightly adapted texts of mr james's stories um and i tell them in a manner approaching the way in which he originally told them he, he originally wrote his stories to, to read aloud to his friends in a uh, kind of gatherings in king's college cambridge on christmas eve the kind of the bachelor dons who didn't have families to go back to would converge on M.R. James's rooms after chapel. They'd drink wine, and they'd have some anchovies on toast, apparently, and they'd listen to M.R. James reading a ghost story. I think you can tell that they were written for telling. I think even when you read them now, that they were told before they were ever printed for these stories. You know, he was a raconteur with M.R. James. He was a, later in life, he was he was quite an eminent preacher when he was a provost of Eton and so on, and he, he knew how to how to hold an audience, an audience of listeners, um, and I think, I, th- I think you know, as I say, when you compare it to other to other authors of his time, um, I mean, in front of me now, I've got the collected ghost stories of Mr. James, next to the complete short stories of H. G. Wells, and you know that they were more or less contemporary. And H. G. Wells, you couldn't simply start reading out an H. G. Wells story in the way that you can an Mr. James story and expect the same kind of results. I don't think. I have this. Old battered old armchair, this table next to me with yeah, it's got books, a pipe, um, various kind of Donish paraphernalia on it, which I, I use at various times. A, a decanter of whiskey and a glass, of course. That, that's kind of you. That, that's a useful prop. Um, 
there's a lot of gesture, a lot of facial expression. But um, it is just me sitting in a chair. I mean, I think uh, unconsciously I was probably influenced quite a lot by Jack and Nori, which I used to really enjoy. The stage shows are often played to a small audience in an appropriately historic setting. The atmosphere I'm trying to recreate is, is that of M.R. James' study. So, you know, if you're surrounded by 20 to 30 people in quite close proximity to each other in a darkened room by candlelight, that's kind of the ideal um, kind of situation in which to do it. I mean, I do perform in larger theatres. I have performed to audiences of three or 400. It's not quite the same. I mean, one place where I perform regularly, which isn't directly connected with M.R. James, but is very, it's a Jamesian kind of place, is... Um, it's a place called Hemingford Grey Manor. It's, it's um, in a village just outside Huntington. And it's the second oldest continuously inhabited house in the country. The, the, kind of the, the core of this house is a, a Norman banqueting hall, which you can seat about 25 people in it. And I, I perform there regularly. And that, that kind of is, has become the, the natural home of the show, really. Um, as for places connected with him, I got the opportunity to perform in his old office in the Fitzwilliam Museum, which is called the Founders Library. It's a magnificent kind of, um, Victorian library. He was the, the provost of King's College, Cambridge, and the provost of Eton. And I've had the opportunity of performing in the provost's drawing rooms of, of both those places, where he probably would have, in fact, at various times, done, you know, read his stories himself. So that, and that was very special. Um, his father, he grew up in a village in Suffolk called Livermere, Great Livermere where his father was the vicar, and I, I performed in the church there, um, which again, in, in, in the graveyard of this church, there are graves to the mother-soul family, and if anyone has ever read the, the ash tree, then um, they'll know that the, the, the witch, the central baddie of the ash tree is called Mrs. Mother-Soul. The intimate performances bring out the best in James, a master of timing and suspense. Greatly to my... Um, discomfort sometimes you know I, I i do get glimpses of people in the front row of the audience sitting there with their eyes shut the paranoia i can imagine that are asleep but it is quite possible i think to listen to and enjoy these stories with your eyes shut so I, you know I, I comfort myself sometimes with the thought that that's what they do robert lloyd perry believes james's character comes through in the nature of his writing a very kind of early piece of writing he made on ghost stories when he was a schoolboy. i think he I'm probably misquoting, but he said something along the lines of um, the teller of a supernatural tale must believe absolutely in the truth of what he is telling. Now, of course, Emma James didn't believe in the truth of the stories he told, but that is the impression that the narrator gives, and I think as a performer you must give as well. What characterises, one thing that characterises his stories is this, this kind of, they do have this oral quality to them. You can tell, particularly when you compare it, if you, if you read a Conan Doyle story you, and try and read it out loud, it isn't as fluent to the ear as I think an M.R. James story is because of this fact that they were originally written to perform that loud. And I very much think he was a performer, M.R. James. He, he was known for his kind of, um, his acting ability as a student. He was quite a, a renowned student actor. But also he had friends and um, people in their memoirs recall his kind of, his array of humorous voices and um, the impressions that he'd make of people. So I, I think he wrote them as, as monologues in a way you get a very strong idea of the narrator's character, the, um, the unnamed narrator. At many literary readings, the page of text clutched in the sweaty hand of the reader acts as a barrier between performer and audience, but Robert Lloyd Parry breaks down that barrier, 
memorising James's stories, thousands of words of prose at a time. These aren't readings, they're tellings. It doesn't get any easier. I've just spent the summer learning another two. And it is really, actually, you know, I, I forget each time how difficult it is. It's very time-consuming. To be honest, it's very boring. It just it requires just repetition, repetition, repetition. I, I go on long walks muttering to myself. And, uh, it can be frustrating, but, um, you know, I, I think learning lines of any kind will do. While I'm learning it, I, I mean, uh, what I'll do is, I'll, first of all, I'll, I'll sit down with the, the text of the story. I'll read it through. I'll kind of, um, if I feel there are kind of, awkward passages or, or long years in it, then I'll kind of adapt them on the page. And then, as I'm learning it, I, I will kind of um, adapt his, his language according to, according to how well it fits in my mouth, really, I suppose. His, his, his language is one of the delightful things about Emile James. I, I, I like to keep as much of it as possible, but just sometimes it, it's a little too... It, it doesn't trip off the tongue always as well as it might. Why is it that these supernatural stories have lasted a century, still scaring us today when the efforts of other writers have become tame or dated? It's, a, I think, a mixture of a, 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 a kind of effortless and brilliant prose style, a, a sense of timing, a sense of pace, and just a, a marvellously weird imagination. But, um, yeah, I, 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 think I, I think maybe the fact that he, he wasn't... A career writer, he kind of, you know, he, he he had a he had a storyteller's sense. Um, he he didn't struggle. I, I don't think he he laboured over his manuscripts and so on. Well, <laughs> he didn't labour over the manuscripts of his own stories anyway. Um, he, he he was he was a natural storyteller, um, a natural comedian in a way, um, and I suppose that, that that's not really an adequate answer other than to say that he had he had a. He had a talent that others don't have. Robert Lloyd Perry has recorded an album of M.R. James's shorter ghost stories, Curious Creatures. You can take advantage of a listener's special offer on the CD, details at the end of this podcast. We're delighted to feature one of his readings next, James's tale, A School Story. The interesting thing about that is that it's one of the um, few stories that we know were written for a, a young audience originally. He wrote it for the choir school of King's College Cambridge in which he was heavily involved um, as I said I think most of the stories he wrote for his own contemporaries for his, his kind of friends in King's College but this was definitely written for the boys of the choir school um, and you can tell it, it's set um, very much in it's inspired by his own prep school which was called Temple Grove which was um, in Richmond where he went before he went to Eton um, and you know this is another of M. L. James's great strengths. He he wrote about what he, he you know he, he wrote about what he knew, and of course he, he didn't know about um, terrible apparitions of demons and so on. But he did know about the places in which he set them, and he did know about the folklore and the, the history behind them. Um, and yes, there's a you know there's a an authenticity to this story that you get in many of his stories that I think adds to the the the, the fear that it induces. A school story. Come away, come away, dear. And in that cypress, let me be made. Fly away, fly away, dear. I 
smoking room were talking of their private school days. At our school, said A, we had a ghost's footmark on the staircase. What was it like? Oh, very unconvincing. Yes, just the shape of the shoe with a, a square toe, I seem to remember. The staircase was a stone one. I, I never heard any story about the thing. Seems rather odd, actually, doesn't it, when you come to think of it? Well, why didn't someone invent one, I wonder? Oh, you, you can never tell with little boys, said his friend. They have a mythology of their own. There's a subject for you, by the way. The folklore of private schools. Yes, yes. The, the crops are the scanty, though, I imagine, really. Uh, I think if you were to investigate the cycle of ghost stories, for instance, which the, the boys at private schools tell each other, they'd all, I think, turn out to be highly compressed versions of stories out of books. Yes, yes, of course. Nowadays, the, the Strand and Pearsons would be extensively drawn upon. Yes, no doubt, no doubt. Uh, they weren't around in my time, of course. Uh, let, let's see, I wonder if I can remember the staple ones that I was told. Well, first, of course, there was the, the house with a room in which a, a series of people insisted on passing a night, and, and each of them in the morning was then found kneeling in a corner and just had time to say, I've seen it, before they died. And then, of course, there was the, the man who heard a noise in the passage at night, opened his door and saw someone crawling towards him on all fours with his eye hanging out on his cheek. There was besides... Oh, let me think now. Yes, of course, the room where a man was found dead in bed with a horseshoe mark on his forehead and the floor under the bed was covered with marks of horseshoes also. I have no idea why. And, yes, then, of course, there was a lady who, on locking her bedroom door in a strange house, heard a thin voice among the bed curtains say, now we're shut in for the night. <laughs> None of these had any explanation or sequel, of course. Yes, I wonder if they go on still, those stories. Oh, likely enough, said his friend, with additions from the magazines, as I said. You never heard, I suppose, of a real ghost at a private school. I thought not. Nobody has that I ever came across. Oof. From the way you said that, do I gather that you have? Oh, I... I don't know. But, well, this is what was on my mind. It happened at my private school 30-odd years ago, and, and I simply haven't any explanation of it. The school, I mean, was near London. It was established in a large, fairly old house, great white building with very fine grounds around it. There were large cedars in the garden, ancient elms in the three or four fields which were used for our games. I think it was probably quite an attractive place, but, well, boys seldom allow that their schools possess any tolerable features. I came to the school in a September in the early 1870s, and among the boys who arrived on the same day was one whom I took to, a, a Highland lad, I'll call him MacLeod. I needn't spend any time describing him, but the main thing was that I got to know him very well. I mean, he was not an exceptional boy in any ways, not particularly good at books or games, but he suited me, you know. One term, perhaps it was my third or fourth, a new master made his appearance. Name was Sampson. He was a tallish, stoutish, pale, black-bearded man. I think we rather liked him. He'd, he'd travelled a good deal and had stories which amused us on our school walk, so there was always some competition among us to get within earshot of him. I remember, too, dear me, I, uh, I've really hardly thought of this since then, that he had a charm on his watch chain that attracted my attention one day. He let me examine it. 
It was, I suppose, a gold Byzantine coin. There was an effigy of some absurd emperor on one side, and the other side had been practically worn smooth. And he'd had cut in it, rather barbarously, I thought, his own initials, GWS, and a date, 24th of July, 1865. I, I can see it now. He told me he'd picked it up in Constantinople. It was about the size of a florin, I mean, perhaps rather smaller. Oh, the first odd thing that happened was this. Sampson was doing Latin grammar with us. Now, one of his favourite methods, and I suppose it is rather a good one, was to make us construct sentences out of our own heads to illustrate the rules that he was trying to make us learn. Now, of course, that is just the kind of thing that gives a silly boy a chance of being impertinent. But, well, Sampson was too good a disciplinarian for us to think of trying anything on with him. On this particular occasion, he was telling us how to express remembering in Latin, and he ordered us each to make a sentence bringing in the verb memini, I remember. Well, most of us, of course, made up some ordinary thing like, I remember my father, or he remembers his book, or something equally uninteresting. And I dare say a good many put down memino libro meo and so forth. But the boy I mentioned, MacLeod, he was evidently thinking of something rather more elaborate than that. The rest of us wanted to have our sentences passed and to get on with something else. So one chap kicked him under the desk, and I, who was sitting next to him, poked him and whispered to him to look sharp. But he, he didn't seem to take any notice. I looked at his paper and saw that he hadn't put anything down. So I jogged him again, harder than before, and upbraided him for keeping us all waiting. And that did have some effect. He started and seemed to wake up. And then, very quickly, he scribbled a couple of lines on his paper and showed it up with the rest. Now, as it was the last, or nearly the last, to come in, and as Sampson had a good deal to say to the boys who had written Meminiscimus Patri Meo and the rest of it, it turned out that the clock struck twelve before he got to MacLeod, so he had to stay behind to have his sentence corrected. There was nothing much going on outside when I got out, so I waited for him in the corridor. He came out very slowly when he did arrive, and I guessed that there'd been some sort of trouble. Well... I said. What did you get? Oh, I don't know, said MacLeod. Nothing much, but I think Sampson's rather sick with me. Why? Did, did you show him up some sort of rot? Oh, no fear, he said. It, it was all right as far as I could see. It was like this. Memento, that's right enough to remember, and it takes the genitive. Memento putte inter quatuor taxos. What silly rot? I said. What made you shove that down? What does it mean? Well, that's the funny part, said MacLeod. I'm not quite sure what it does mean. All I know is it, it, it just came into my head and I corked it down. I know what I think it means, because just before I wrote it down, I had a sort of a picture of it in my head. I believe that it means, remember the well among the four... What are those dark sort of trees that have red berries on them? Mountain ashes? I said. No, no, no. I'll tell you. Ewes, yes. Remember the well among the four ewes. Well, what did Sampson say? Well, he was jolly odd about it. When he read it, he got up and went to the mantelpiece and stopped quite a long time without saying anything with his back to me. And then he said, without turning round and rather quiet... What do you suppose that means? 
Well, I told him what I thought, only I couldn't remember the name of the silly tree. And then he wanted to know why I put it down, and I had to say something or other. And after that, he left off talking about it and asked me how long I'd been here and where my people lived, things like that. And then I came away, but well, he wasn't looking a bit well. Now, I don't remember any more that was said by either of us about this. Next day, MacLeod took to his bed with a chill or something of the kind, and it was a week or more before he was in school again. And, as much as a month went by without anything happening that was noticeable, now, whether or not Samson was really startled, as MacLeod had thought, he, he certainly didn't show it. I, I'm pretty sure, of course, now that there was something very curious in his past history, but I'm not going to pretend that we boys were sharp enough to guess any such thing at the time. There was another similar incident, though, some weeks later. Several times since that day, we'd had to make up examples in school to illustrate different rules in Latin, but there'd never been any row about it except when we did them wrong. At last, though, there came a day when we were going through those dismal things that people call conditional sentences, and we were told to make a conditional sentence expressing a future consequence. Well, we did it, of course, right or wrong, and showed off our bits of paper, and Samson began looking through them. All at once, he got up, made some odd sort of noise in his throat, and rushed out by a door that was just by his desk. Well, we all just sat there for a moment or two, and then, I suppose it was incorrect, but we went up, I and one or two others, to look at the papers on his desk. Of course, I thought Swan must have put down some nonsense or other, and Samson had gone off to report him, but I noticed he hadn't taken any of the papers with him when he ran out. Well, the top paper on the desk was written in red ink, which no-one used, and it wasn't in anyone's hand who was in the class. We all looked at it, MacLeod and all, and we all took our dying oaths that it wasn't ours. And then I thought of counting the bits of paper, and of this I made quite certain that there were 17 bits of paper on the desk and 16 boys in the form. Well, I bagged the extra paper and kept it, and I believe that I, I have it to this day, and I suppose you want to know what was written on it. Well, it seems simple and harmless enough. It said, See to non veneris ad me, ego veniam ad te. If you don't come to me, I'll come to you. But here's the really odd thing about it. That same afternoon, I took it out of my locker. I know for certain it was the same bit, for I made a finger mark on it, and no single trace of writing of any kind was there on it. I kept it, as I said, the paper, and since that time I've tried various experiments to see whether sympathetic ink had been used, but absolutely without result. Well, so much for that. After about half an hour, Samson looked in again, said he'd felt very unwell and told us we could go. He came rather gingerly to his desk and gave just one look at the uppermost paper, and I suppose he thought he must have been dreaming anyhow. He, he asked no questions, and that day was a half-holiday... And the next day, Samson was in school again, much as usual. That night, the third and last incident in my story happened. We, MacLeod and I, slept in a dormitory at right angles to the main building. Now, Samson himself slept in the main building on the first floor. There was a, a very bright full moon that night, at, at an hour that I, I can't tell exactly, but it was sometime between one or two. I was woken up suddenly by someone shaking me. It was MacLeod, and a nice state of mind he seemed to be in. Come, he said, come, there's a burglar getting in through Samson's window. Well, as soon as I could speak, I said, 
Well, why not call out and wake everybody up? No, no, he said. I'm not sure who it is. Look, don't make a row. Come and look. And naturally, I came and looked. And naturally, there was nobody there. I mean, I was cross enough, and I should have called MacLeod plenty of names, only I, I couldn't tell why. It, it seemed to me that there was something wrong, something that made me very glad I wasn't alone to face it. We were still at the window looking out, and as soon as I could, I asked MacLeod what he'd heard or seen. Well, I, I didn't hear anything at all, he said. But about five minutes before I woke you, I found myself looking out of this window here, and there was a man sitting or kneeling on Sampson's windowsill, looking in, and I thought that he was beckoning. Well, well what sort of a man? I asked. MacLeod wriggled. Well, well I, I don't know, he said. But I can tell you one thing. He was beastly thin, and he looked as if he was wet all over, and... He looked round, and whispering as though he hardly liked to hear himself. I'm not at all sure that he was alive. Well, we went on talking like that for some time longer, and eventually crept back to bed. No one else in the room woke or stirred the whole time. I believe that we did sleep a bit afterwards, but we were very cheap the next day. And the next day, Mr. Sampson was gone not to be found, and I believe that no trace of him has ever come to light since. Now, thinking it over, one of the oddest things about all this is that neither MacLeod nor I ever mentioned what he'd seen to anybody else. Of course, no questions were asked on the subject, and if they had been, I, I'm inclined to believe that we could not have made any answer. We seemed quite unable to speak about it. And, well, that, that, that's my story. The only approach to a ghost story connected with a school that I know of, but still, I think... An approach to such a thing. The sequel to this may perhaps be reckoned highly conventional, but a sequel there is, and so it must be produced. There had been more than one listener to this story, and in the latter part of that same year, that silent listener was staying at a country house in Ireland. One evening his host was turning over a drawer full of odds and ends in the smoking room. Suddenly he put his hand upon a little box. Now, he said, you know about old things. Tell me what this is. I opened the little box and found in it a thin gold chain with an object attached to it. I glanced at the object and then took off my spectacles to examine it more narrowly. What's the history of this? I asked. Oh, odd enough, said my host. You know the, the yew thicket in the shrubbery? Well, a year or two back, we were cleaning out the old well that used to be there, and what do you suppose we found? Is it possible that you found a body? I asked. We did that. But what's more, in every sense of the word, we found two. Good heavens, two. Was there anything to show how they'd got there? Was this thing found with them? It was, among the rags of the clothes that were on one of the bodies. A bad business, whatever it may have been. One body had the arms tight round the other. They must have been there 30 years or more, long before we came to this place anyway. You may judge that we, we filled the well up pretty fast after that. Now, can you make anything of what's inscribed on that gold coin you have there? I think I can, I said 
holding it to the light, but I could read it without much difficulty. It seems to be GWS, 24th July, 1865. To hear more ghost stories read by Robert Lloyd Parry, you can get his CD, Curious Creatures, The Shorter Horror of M.R. James, for a special Halloween price of just six ninety nine, including postage. Just email your request to robloydparry at hotmail.com. The details are also on the Litro Lab page of the litro.co.uk website. You've been listening to the Litro Lab podcast. A school story by M.R. James was read by Robert Lloyd Parry.